So you weren't at handheld this week. Why? Well, I thought you'd have popped down. It was right round the corner from you. I really should have. I've been in, I've been traveling a lot recently. I've been to San Francisco twice and Belfast in between to go to Build Conference, the final Build Conference. So I I feel sort of traveled out really. I needed a, <laughs> needed some time off. It was it was a good week though. I think you'd have enjoyed it. I had a couple of friends that 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 went actually. They said it was fantastic. Hmm. No, we'll talk about it. I think throughout the show really. But I, it was really really nice to be doing a talk because I didn't expect to be doing it up until about a week ago. Because Craig, Craig the organizer, Craig and Amy, they did the most amazing job. I think it seemed to be just the two of them doing everything. I'm sure somewhere, somewhere in the valleys, there's an Amy clone factory. <laughs> because you think they have minions? She was amazing. She was like so attentive and um, so on top of what seemed to be every bit of the organising. I'm sure there must have been at least three of her. You know, she'd she'd sort of say, "Would I like a cup of tea?" And he'd go, "Oh yes, that'd be lovely." And then like. 20 seconds later, somebody looked just like her would arrive with a cup of tea. Uh, yeah, I don't know how people do that, organising a, a conference like that. It's just so much work. Well, it was huge. I mean, first of all, it was in the Wales Millennium Centre, which is the biggest stage in Europe. Really? Oh, yeah. And so that wasn't scary. I got there. <laughs> I got there because I, I, I've got this superstition where – I always like to stand on the stage before an event just so that I can kind of get used to visualizing it in my mind anyway. Um, that seems like a good trick rather than a superstition. That sounds like well, well founded belief really, right? <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a good trick. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I can't remember who it was that sort of suggested now, but it, I think it's just kind of grown organically. So I like to, I like to go and stand up there and, you stand up there in this Wales Millennium Centre and it's huge. I mean, there's, well, I mean, thousands of seats. I mean, I think they'd actually sold about 1,200 tickets. Wow. Which was staggering. And then, of course, it's in this place where they, they, they do Swan Lake. You know, they have opera and ballet and it's like it's a massive great art centre. So it's the biggest stage. Um, it took 25 strides to get from one side to the wow, other. Wow, that's a big sort of big, big step. Big step. So, along. that's 20. I know. Even Jason Santa Maria couldn't fall <laughs> off that stage. <laughs> Shouldn't mention that really. Jason always falls off stages. Do you walk, do you walk around a lot while you're, I don't think I've ever seen you. Maybe one, one year I, I saw you speak, I think. I, I tend to walk around a bit, but this time though, I got there at 7.30 in the morning because <sighs> I'd, I wasn't on until later on in the in in the the afternoon, so I wanted to get there before the audience were in the room, mm -hmm. so I could do the whole stage standing thing. And I get there, and Aral Balkan is there, literally in full flow. He's doing like a little five minute spot about this uh, open source project that he does, mm -hmm. um, and he is literally in full flow, rehearsing his talk to a room of nobody. Which he's stolen your trick. No, I know I couldn't do. It. I don't. I don't. I never rehearsed. Do you ever rehearse? No, no, me neither. No, I mean I'll go through things mentally, and sometimes I'll sit there throughout the day and I'll just kind of flick through things. Just, but he. I mean, he was word for word the same as the as the. That's impressive. 
Yeah, no, he was. He was doing the, like a word for word, um, rehearsal. And, you know, and I'm, I'm sure, I think Americans do this a lot more than we do, to oh, be maybe. honest. Because sometimes, and I don't mean this in any kind of disrespectful way to my American friends, but sometimes, sometimes the talks can come through, come over as a little bit like over polished in a way. Maybe that's a cultural difference. Maybe, maybe they, they see ours as, uh, you know, slapped together and, 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 and off the cuff and they, and they think that's strange. Maybe, maybe it's that. I know what you mean though. They always seem like they've, uh, they've got the entire thing down and the, the, the brain's sort of shut down at the back and they're, you know, they're, they're just running through the, running through the words and just picking it up where they need to. Well, yes. I mean, some, some people, I mean, I know a lot of, a lot of fantastic speakers, no matter where they come from. Um, Sometimes I think things can sound maybe a little bit over rehearsed. I'm not saying that Arolds did because, you know, Arolds didn't. And, and he did this, uh, I think it was called it slide and stage a few months ago. How long was his talk? Oh, just like five minutes because he was announcing this new project. But he, he's, he's a very, very accomplished public speaker. And, um, you know, he's very polished. I'm not saying he's over polished. He's, he's very polished. But I remember he was he was talking to uh, to somebody else that was around about um, giving them some tips about the presentation, um, and he, he was saying to uh, I think it was Craig actually, you know, just plant your feet, and you know you can move around, you know, you can move your body, but you know you don't you, you won't look nervous, you won't be sort of nervously twitching, kind of pacing around. Right. And I think I think I've I've had a tendency to do that a little too much over the years, you know, where you kind of pace from one side to the stage to the next. So this time I made a, a decision to literally plonk myself dead center of the stage. <laughs> um, and, you know, just, just, just talk from there. Um, and I did wander about a little bit and I have my little digression corner. <laughs> so when I went, when I went off on a tangent, I'd kind of go across the other side. Of the oh, stage. you actually used, you used the space. Yes, I, I did that. But I tell you, the, the, if I have any criticism of, handheld from a, a speaker's point of view and mm. it's the tiniest thing but so many conferences do this I've, I've noticed over the last few years they put a lectern up you know there's some kind of uh stand on the usually on the side of the stage where you know you put your computer and there's the connection for the av and you know all the power's kind of hooked up into that place and generally speaking if you can imagine it you've got the stage itself and then let's say as you're looking at the stage, the, the podium, the, 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 the what, what did I just call it? The podium. Podium thing. Yeah. Lectern thing. Right? Lectern. It's generally kind of facing into the stage. So it's not flat onto the audience. It's sort of at a 45 degree angle, obviously facing into the stage. Oh. Now that sounds perfect. It's exactly how you'd imagine it to be, but that's a, such a flipping pain in the ass because people like me that, you know, you've got your notes, you present a display up in Keynote. It's flipping facing away from you. Because <laughs> you're standing in the you're standing Because you're standing in the middle, the middle of, the of the stage. Exactly, which is why often people um, seem to be tethered to the podium. Because, you know, you need to be within sight of your notes. I've seen that fixed with uh, the comfort monitor down down by the footlights. Which which is showing your display, which I've never had work properly. It works properly until you begin your your talk, and then it's blank, and and nothing's happening, and and you don't know whether it's supposed to be working. But you know, there's a thousand people listening and waiting for you to to say something, so you 
you kind of have have to plow on, and that's the worst part. Well, here's the thing, because they did have two huge um what do they call it in music where you have the amps facing back towards you they is it fold back monitors i think so anyway they had two of those i'm gonna listen back and be like that's not what it is at all no who cares um they had two of those on the front of the stage and they were massive they're like 42 inch tellies down there oh there were tvs they're, well i don't know but they, they look like monitors but they were they were big ass big ass monitors and what they showed um was they showed what was on the screen behind you. Yeah. So that's the comfort thing, yeah. So, but for if you've ever used Keynote, you've got the presenter display as well that you can oh, look at. Oh, which so shows yeah. you any notes or So you could have done any. with your notes down there. Well, this is the thing, right? And the way that they generally set these things up, the AV, and this is not just handheld, but the way that a lot of conferences set it up is if you do have a comfort monitor, it's showing you what's on the big screen so you don't have to do, oh, we just turn around a point, which is one of, I think it's kind of big speaker faux pas is we need constantly turning around, pointing at the screen. Mm. So what would be even more useful is if you put, if you can have your notes or the see the next slide or something like that, on the comfort monitor. Yeah, because there's that secondary display thing, isn't there, where you've got current exactly. slide, next slide, notes. Yes, exactly. And what happened was, was that I asked whether I could have that um, for handheld, and the, the AV guy said no because it just wasn't – they just hadn't wired everything because up technical reasons, yeah. Yeah, they had just hadn't wired up. No, yeah. Nobody had asked for it, right? So I was lucky – and I didn't have any slides for this talk. I was doing a whole thing kind of, you know, keynote commando. Whoa. So, but I did have 100 slides that nobody got to see. Oh, just with notes. Just with notes on it. Exactly. So I wanted that on my, I, I had that down on the, uh, on the comfort monitors and then just a blank up at the back. Keynote commander. Did you make that up? No, I think Jeremy Keith wrote that. I just stole it because he's cleverer than me. And uh, and that was it. And it, it, that worked out quite nicely because it wasn't like, well, it was almost like, I suppose, having an auto cue in a way. So yeah. ho- hopefully it didn't look as though, I, well, I wasn't reading from them, but, you know, hopefully it didn't look like I was kind of looking down at that stuff all the time. But I stood far enough back so that I could kind of look at them and look at the audience without having to kind of bend my head. Yeah, that's what you want. That sounds good. Uh, is there a video of this? Yes, there will be. I don't know when it's going to come out, but there was um, there was a couple of cameras in the room, I think, and Craig runs a, I think they call it um, B-Square, I think is his video production company. And so I imagine that the quality of those will be really good. So, no, it was a, it was a cracking, cracking couple of days. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I did a workshop the day before in Craig's new uh, Founders Hub co-working space. Oh, what's it like? It was okay, actually. Um, again, it had a bloody podium that was fixed to the floor <laughs> that I couldn't move. <laughs> it's just like, excuse me, I'm bugbear. Got to complain about something on every show. It's usually soap. It's usually soap. It's podiums today. Hey, I tell you what we should do. <laughs> and then they've got a microphone on them, and you don't know whether that one's live. And you can, sometimes you don't have a headset. No, I never use microphones for workshops because. Oh, it's for much never that big. No. Um, conference talks are always interesting when, uh, when they mic you up beforehand and they say, don't worry, it's, it, it's always on, but we're just going to turn it off at the desk. <laughs> they listen to <laughs> everything. 
<laughs> they just scan that. between the channels and they listen to everything. That's that's the sound guys. The sound guys, though, if you ever do run a conference, the sound people running the sound and lighting, uh, they are the ones that you need to keep happy. And it, constantly people forget this. Is that 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 this. <laughs> There's some poor chap at the back twiddling some knobs and generally not doing much, but uh, you know he's he's the guy running the running the whole show. And if and if you know if he's not if he's not feeling great about what he's doing, then you know one one slip up and and uh, everything goes wrong. You get feedback or whatever. Those poor guys have to sit there, and often they're you know they they belong to the venue or whatever, so they've they've got to sit there and listen to something they have no interest in. And one day it's you know one day it's a web conference and we're fairly interesting, but the next day it might be, well it could be anything. Could be salesmen or advertising or, or what? What was that? Aggregates. You know what they are? What is an aggregate? It's gravel, man. It's like ground up stone. There's conferences about aggregates. Yeah, we were in. I think it was. Uh, it's a few <laughs> years ago now. I'm not. I'm not making this up. We were in. Uh, I think it was Washington D.C. A few years ago, doing an event apart, and there was an aggregates conference going on at the same hotel. Uh, and we kept riding the lift with all of these delegates from the aggregates world. <laughs> and tell me, trust me, what can they talk about? I've had this. I've had this. I've, we had a Christmas bash. Uh, I used to work in an office that was above an, an advertising agency. And, and all of their clients came to the Christmas bash, of course. And, and you're there and it's 11 o'clock and you're, you know, you're half cut and you're talking to someone. And he says, so what do you do? And he said, oh, I'd, I work, I'm in the cement industry. And I, I, I didn't know what to say. I said, well, no, I had nothing. What do you say to someone about cement? How is the cement industry? Surely that's one of the, the like, it just transcends all economic conditions. It's like people are always going to need cement. Oh, yeah, it's like haircuts. You know, everybody always needs cement. Everybody always needs haircuts. But how do you get into a job like that? I mean, I, I, I have no idea. I thought, it was, you... I thought it was dead man's shoes, dead man's cement shoes. <laughs> You know, what's a one-in-one-out no system? People do this. I've never heard of anybody getting into it, so it must be a... It's like being a mason. If your grandfather worked in cement, I, I don't know. Can you do the Masonic handshake? I think so. I saw a diagram on the internet once. You you, you touch your um, index finger and, and index finger and thumb around the other person's thumb. You You press, I think it's you press the middle knuckle. You know it? Uh, I do know it, Are and I'm not a mason? mason, as you can well imagine. Um, <laughs> well, but I used I'd... to have a friend who was like Grand Master something in some Masonic Lodge in Kent. Uh... It's quite funny. Anyway, we digress, really. I'd say what we should do hmm. 15 minutes into this program is uh, I should explain that that you're Elliot Kemba. I am. Because we've had complaints. About, uh, uh, well, they can't have been about me. No, not about you specifically. No, it's a complaint about me, obviously. What? I didn't realise this, but people don't always read the show notes. And I was talking to some people about this at Handheld as well, and I've now kind of realised a little bit um, what they're talking about. But a lot of people, when they are, apparently, anyway, when they they subscribe to podcasts in you know, Instacast or Downcast or the crappy Apple oh, app. Oh, they right? just get them automatically. They get them automatically and they go into a, like an unheard, un, not unread, unlistened to playlist. And then, you know, they just have them on in order. So it'll go from, you know, freelance web to happy Monday to us to something else. And of course, 
over the last few weeks anyway i just haven't been announcing who's been on the show i've just you know we've just been having a chat oh i see so you so can people, go from a podcast that you recognize to two strangers two strangers talking yeah well i mean maybe they know me but they they're not sure who it is on the show and anyway i got i got letters of complaint that sounds a lot more like a suggestion than a complaint well, I mean, possibly, but I just, cause I used to do, you know, back when, when we started it, when Anna was, was on here, I used to think of it almost like a, um, like a program, you know? Yeah. And I'd start it's off like, free form. this is, like, this is unfinished you. business and the date and the episode number and stuff like that. I remember those days. And then I thought, you know, nobody cares about the episode number really. You know, who cares that it's episode 47? It's like, why? And then I thought, Oh, nobody cares about the date because, you know, everybody listens to it at different times. And, you know, I get people saying I'm just catching up on three months worth of unfinished business. <laughs> so I kind of dropped that. And then I thought, well, crap, people know what they're listening to because they've actually, you know, subscribed to. Why should why should I just say this is unfinished business? Anyway. But they have a see, they have a different use case than you expected. I know. Exactly. And they're giving, and you, I, they're giving you feedback. And my my listening habits aren't obviously the same as everybody else's so so anyway so yeah i thought i think what i need to do because i i don't want to do you know interview shows i don't want to sort of you know sort of on this week's show we have elliot kember you know but you know, i don't want to do ask that me way. questions it, well uh, yeah exactly um nothing wrong with interview shows you know there's there's a lot of good ones i just don't want this to be one of them and then the, i just thought I, I do you listen to the talk show with john gruber i don't i don't actually listen to many podcasts at all so I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> do you think I do? Well, no, we can edit all this out, of course. What's editing? Uh, we'll, fi we'll fix it in post. Okay, whatever that means. No, so, no, the way, what I like about the talk show is that it's a little bit like just you know, stumbling into the middle of a conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I like that. And I, and I, that's what I want to kind of do on this on this program as well um but i think i think yeah i'm gonna meet you halfway people who want to know who's on and i shall promise from now on that i shall introduce whoever it is within the first i don't know hour to 90 minutes of the program <laughs> of course because you don't have any like uh introduction music or uh you know an edited in little button of of, of someone speaking that says do you think we should have a theme tune we can't have one now well, not for this one, but, you know, future ones. I could play you a little tune. I don't know whether I want a theme tune, to be 20 honest. Minutes you, can you add a theme tune after you've already recorded a whole bunch of episodes? I don't know. It might be a bit of a shock. I suppose. Uh, Shaking Stevens, Green Door, that would be my, that would be my, um, my, my choice tune. It means a lot. It does mean a lot more uh, editing. It does mean a lot more work. So, if you're doing one every week, it goes from... An hour and a half to edit it to, you know, maybe more. It means you have to find I, that little interesting clip that you put before the, the intro soundbite and then, and, you know, move things around. I don't think we need to do, we need to, we don't think we need a theme tune. Anna used to put outtakes in sometimes at the end because she's cleverer than I am. That's always fun. That's fun. There weren't that many outtakes actually, but usually me is kind of screwing up on sponsor reads. <laughs> Not yours, obviously. Never did that. You never, you never got it wrong. Never got it wrong, mate. How could I get it wrong talking about hammer? Well, it's a simple, uh, simple use case. I get it's, it's, it's different for that because you, you know, 
it's a product that you've used for some time and 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 like I guess and it was all what was always nice about the the read is that it always felt like you it was something that you really you know you wanted to 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 sort of talk about yeah no it's true I and mean, we should say for the benefit of the audience that uh, you are the creator the brains behind it wouldn't have happened without you hammer for mac which I do kind of obsessively talk about even when you're not sponsoring the show. That's hammerformac.com. You, you promised that you wouldn't slip that in. Oh, did I? You said we're not going to make this into an infomercial about Hammer. Oh, no, that was Forge. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, whatever it is that you make. We'll just get I'll Forge. I'll tell you what we should do. You're going to get more letters. Oh, I know. Let's just get this out of the way. Let's, let's, let's do the sponsor for this week, which is Ba-ba-ba-ba. actually... No, it's a good one. No, it's a new one. And I'm really happy to, to talk about it, actually, because it's an app that I've been using over the past couple of weeks, alongside Hammer for Mac, obviously, Ooh, and Ghost Lab, because you can't mention Hammer without mentioning Ghost Lab, usually. Do it. Um, but I've been working with this new app um, on the Stuff and Nonsense redesign that, that we launched last week, which you know, we could talk about in a minute. Mm. Um, and this app's called WebCode. And it's a brand new vector drawing application for people who design HTML5 games, infographics, or maybe like me, website app and app interfaces. So WebCode lets you concentrate on creating while it writes JavaScript and Canvas, HTML, CSS, and SVG code for you. And I've been getting, I've been getting quite a lot more interested in SVG recently, especially as because you know, we've got a lot more high resolution displays to design for. Yeah. So I'd thought about, in fact, I really wanted to do, and we have versions of these. Uh, I really wanted to do SVG for all the apes on the new site in the header. Um, in fact, like I said, we've got SVG versions of all of the, the gorillas and the chimp, not for the backgrounds. Cause oh, I, I think you mentioned this. Yeah, that's right. I did. But by the time that we'd kind of processed them and even, even um, with some friends of ours at Adobe that, um, I think ran them through some secret thing. I mean, I think Adobe <sighs> have like a secret foundry somewhere where, you know, they kind of, they, they make, they found, they, they hammer SVGs into shape, make them smaller. Anyway, even though they did that for me, I, they were still bigger. The SVG files were still larger by a fairly wide margin than uh, weird. the optimized PNG. It's because the paths were so complicated. Oh, I see. Oh, you had really, uh, Lots of lots of tiny lines, yeah. You've seen well, you've seen those gorillas. I mean, they're f- quite intricate in a lot of places, a lot of paths. So I really wanted to use SVG, but I couldn't. They were just too too um, too big. But what I did do was I used SVG for all of the icons around the site as well. Oh, nice! And those were made and exported in web code along with the PNG fallbacks that I need for old sad browsers like i8. Oh, gotcha. So I looked at my stats and. Anyway, the, the, the week that we were building it, I think the previous month to that, we'd had something like 46,500 visits to the site. I think something like that. It's not, not a huge amount. Mm. Um, but 640 of those uh, used IE8. So I thought, I bet those 640, you know, they, they, that could actually be, you know, a customer demographic. Yeah. So I thought, okay, yeah, well, I'll spend some time. It took a morning, basically, to rewrite the CSS for i8 and to do all the fallbacks. 
Um, and WebCode worked brilliantly for that. I mean, just everything I wanted. It makes it really easy to export the SVG and also the uh, the PNG format. Oh, that's a good feeling, isn't it? Lovely. So WebCode also works with JavaScript and Canvas. I'm, you know, I'm not an expert in that. But you can use its built-in vector drawing tools to make illustrations or infographics or interface elements. And then you watch WebCode instantly show you the JavaScript and the output uh, code those tools make it easy to create linear or radial gradients and shadows and then just export them as CSS. So you can stop writing those things and just let web code take care of it for you. And it will convert rectangles, rounded rectangles, ovals, text, images, uh, and gradients, all into HTML and CSS, which is brilliant. Oh, that's clever. And, you know, people should still use shadows and, uh, and gradients because, you know, not everything has to be flat, let's say. I agree. I think you're right. So if you need to import layer graphics, paths, text, groups from Photoshop, you can do that in web code. And then when you finish, just export in PNG, TIFF, PDF. You can even export both the retina and the non-retina images all at the same time. That's a real-time saver. I really enjoyed using web code last week. It was great. In fact, I'd actually bought copies for everyone in the studio before we then talked about them sponsoring the program. So that's quite nice. Yeah, that's what you want, isn't it? That's the best. That's the best kind of sponsorship. And it looks brilliant on my new shiny Retina MacBook Pro that I just had to boast about having because it's new and I love it. I know. WebCode costs £24.49 on the UK App Store and $34.99 on the US Store. There's also a free trial available. And for that, go to webcodeapp.com. And that's WebCode. And I think it's really worth taking a look. I know that people are, especially with the demise of fireworks and you know i speak to a lot of people that are i mean they love adobe but you know it's a commitment you know you can't just buy a piece of software now it's like that whole kind of creative cloud thing um so you know lots of people i was talking to john hicks this week about stuff that he's using and he's using a lot more sketch and he's trying out web code as well you know just nice little niche apps for doing you know, a small number of jobs really well rather than some great, you know, massive suite to deal with. I think it's nice. I think that's, that's the, that's the future in my opinion. These big apps, it's just technological debt. You just end up with hundreds of features to support and all of your users, you know, use a different subset of them. And so Adobe get into the situation where they have these monster programs that, uh, the operating system changes underneath you and suddenly you have to change everything. Brendan Dawes, my old friend Brendan Dawes, was speaking at Handheld this week, and he said something which is brilliant. It's the funniest thing I've, I've well, not the funniest thing I've ever heard, but it was pretty damn funny. <laughs> he said when he started using Photoshop, it was Photoshop 2, and this was in the days before layers. She <laughs> said, yeah, young kids won't know this now. It's like, man, I'm wrestling with Photoshop. It's like, oh, back in the day, we didn't even have layers. It was yeah. like working in a mine. Anyway, he said Photoshop 2, um, you know, that's what it was used for. It was used for, you know, retouching graphics, um, retouching fo- photographs, and, and that was its job, and it did that really, really well. And he said it's like the cool Elvis from the 1960s. It's like the cool Elvis, that's what Photoshop was like. He said Photoshop now, it's like the fat Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the fat Elvis, you know, full of, full of burgers and dying on they a toilet. They do call that bloat. Yes. And then that was, yeah, comparing Photoshop to the fat Elvis was. You get someone comes on board and they say, 
you know, we need to we need to expand our user base. We need to get the people doing this. And and you know, you add feature X to to your software and you just you know, then you have to support it for life. So we want to talk about feedback today. Because that was a lot of that was what I was talking about down at handheld mm-hmm. in terms of uh you know me working for clients and you know designing sites and 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 how we get the right structured feedback at the right time that kind of stuff um but obviously you have a completely different maybe it's maybe i think it's completely different but you have a different side to that in terms of you're making apps um and you know getting things like feature requests and feedback in that kind of way so is it different or am i just talking about me aris it is different it's the same it's the same sort of thing but at the end of the day they're paying you a lot less money for for whatever it is so you know when a when a client gives you feedback it's it's their baby it's their it's their product you know their their project that they're going to have to you know have after you've you've finished with it and, and it represents them whereas an application is more i paid money for this and and it should do you know this other thing so they it's this it appears the same on 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 the surface i think but uh you know underneath it's it's just you know, people have a different amount of investment in, in whatever it is. And surprisingly, you know, you, you, we, we do get a lot of, you know, a lot of feedback for, for things like Hammer and, 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 you know, our, our other stuff as well, where, where people will, you know, suggest features or say, you know, this is wrong or this is right. Um, which you don't, you, you don't expect, I, you know, I think from, you know, from a, a from a, a customer, I'd like an end user. Whereas when we do client work and, you know, contracts, it's, uh, it's sort of more important to take on, <laughs> take on people's suggestions because, as you say, they you know they want to have something in it, and it, at the end of the day, it's theirs. You're doing it for them, so it's uh, it's 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 the same deal, but you you kind of have to treat it differently. You know, you can mitigate it a lot more with a with a with a client project because obviously they're there from the start and, and they know what you're making. One of the things that I was talking about this week at the conference was the fact that you know, in my experience, anyway. The, the problems that we have, you know, when we're doing client work, I mean, they haven't changed. You know, they have the, the stuff that we're dealing with hasn't really changed over, you know, the last sort of 15 years and probably, you know, a long time before the web. But the whole responsive design, um, movement, if you like, change over the last, you know, few years. Yeah. That's really amplified the problems. So, if if there's a you know, particular sort of sticky problem in one area, mm. then responsive design makes it ten times worse. Oh yeah. You know, oh yeah. It introduces so many variables. You know, you're already in a in a in a in a difficult spot because you don't know how your you know your code is going to be used. You don't know how your d- design is going to be shown to the user. And there's this there's this whole thing about does it need to look the same in every browser, which. Uh, I actually, I disagree with, with, you know, with most of the opinions on this. I, people always say that, oh, it doesn't have to look the same in every browser, but, but I, I don't know about that. I, I think it, I think it, you know, I really think it should. I think if you've got a design in mind for the way something should look and the way someone should use something, whatever you, whatever medium you're, you know, you're, you're in should at least try to be as, as faithful to your original plan or idea as, as possible. It doesn't need to look exactly the same, I suppose, but, but, you know, if, when, once you break that, you ruin the user experience. You ruin that that perfect veneer of "I made this," and the you know the technological details should fade away underneath. 
Well, I think that whole issue came about, you know, I wrote about that in you know a couple of books and stuff. And it, I think the whole issue came about because we really didn't have a level playing field in terms of browser support for, um, you know, emerging CSS for a long time. Yeah, that's true. And the big issue of, you know, and Dan Cederholm even had a website. Do you remember this? It was websites. Do, do websites need to look the same in every browser.com? Yeah. And it just said, it just said no. There was a big no. And then that was basic. That was basically a progressive enhancement um, exercise in that, no, the browser didn't support, uh, you know, drop shadows, but it got yeah. an appropriate experience depending on the capabilities of the browser. And that's, that's what, you know, that's what we've all done. Hmm. Things are slightly different now in that apart from, you know, painful old browsers, which we'd have to deal with less and less, you know, there's a bloody strong foundation for consistency across, you know, all the modern browsers that we really need to care about. And, the, you know, the last versions of IE from, you know, 9 onwards have been bloody brilliant. Mm. You know, I wish they'd support CSS columns. That would make my life a bit easier. But no, but one of the things that I've been, we're sort of digressing from feedback, but kind of occurred to me over the last, you know, a couple of years when I've been thinking about this, is that there are lots of things which will transcend the different presentations of, of of your design you know um you know typography color use of shadows and texture and gradients and all those kind of things you know how a paragraph look is going to be the same across you know most devices yeah how your buttons look is going to be the same thing um so you've got all of these elements well i mean i've called it atmosphere because you know the, your typography your color um any technical uh, any te- uh, textural elements like you know do you have rounded corners or square ones Mm. Is it flat color or gradient? Is there a shadow? No shadow. All of those things are going to be exactly the same across every browser and device that you care to mention, right? The thing that changes is the layout. And that's going to be the thing which changes. So we've got to think about separating layout from the rest of the aspects of design, right? Okay. And when you're talking about, um, you know, your finely crafted presentation, well, that's branding, isn't it? And obviously you would want your branding to be consistent across everything. Um, so I agree with you on one hand, but obviously on the other hand, you know, we need to, uh, it's, it's the content and the layout which is going to change, but the overall presentation has got to stay the same, hasn't it? I guess I should clarify my, my position on it, which is probably that if you're, a, you know, a web designer working on this stuff, You've, you've got to at least give it a shot, but my, my problem is probably more with the browsers or supporting different things. Like, well, one thing I've always loved about, about iOS is that, um, no matter what device you're on, as, you know, iPhone, rise, and, and although they did change the screen at one point, the, 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 the device is always the same, you know, and the, and the interface is always the same, and all the buttons are all, always in the same place, and nothing ever, Nothing sort of customizable and breakable. So everybody has that exact same user experience. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's consistent and you know what to expect is the main thing. So when you're building something on an iPhone, you know roughly what the, you know, well, you know exactly what the screen resolution density is and, and how big everything's going to be in actual, you know, human measurements and centimeters and, and things. So it, it, you, you get a lot of, uh, a lot of help from the thing being consistent. So with the you know with the with browser engines all rendering everything completely differently, it's it's hard to expect. And I think most of the time we spend 
on feedback or on bug fixing or on changing is due to those inconsistencies in the platform. But, they, I mean, they're inherent. You can't get rid of them. It's hard. Well, this has been one of the things that I've talked about for a while in that we've – and, again, it goes back to one of the things I was talking about in the talk this week was that we've relied in the past on design tools. I mean, you know, Photoshop for the most part. And we've tried to communicate design to somebody through uh, a tool like that um, and, you know, through a PSD or a static visual or whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah. Uh, but those things are completely ill-equipped to even talk about design because, you know, how do you, uh, how do you represent the differences between, let's say, an operating system's rendering of a button or a form element in Photoshop? You can't. I mean, you know, unless you end up making like, you know, 10 different versions, which would be stupid. So that's one of the problems with, with communication that we've had over the years, I think, in that a lot of designers have spent a lot of time working on beautifully crafted pictures of websites um, and worked on those uh, to show them to a client um, and it's almost like the artifact itself. It's like the, the visual itself takes on almost more importance or as much importance as the finished result, right? Because, you know, of all the hours that get sucked into it. Yeah. It's like, I've made my thing and it's here and it's perfect. And this is what I want the website to look like. Right. Unfor and, and, and unfortunately, you know, you might as well have a flipping seance in terms of, you know, predicting what the, the website's going to look like, right? Because <laughs> you can't flip and do it. Um, but the problem has been is that as designers, often we've we've hidden behind these tools. You know, we've hidden behind these these things. We've tried to let we've tried to let things like wireframes and static visuals do the talking for us. And unfortunately, what's happened a lot of the time is we've created a huge problem for ourselves because there is no consistency in a lot of areas. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I know that it's a, it's, it, it's solved now, but you know, years and years and years ago, you know, you'd get a client saying, well, can I not have rounded corners on these buttons? And you go, I'm ever so sorry, but you know, internet Explorer doesn't support rounded corners. And the reason why the client's even asking is because you put rounded corners on the comp, you idiot. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and now you've got yourself, you've got yourself into a mess. That's and the, that's, that's the one. That's that's the whole thing about designers needing to be able to code. I, I don't care who does it, but it shouldn't be in the comp if you can't make it happen. Well, no. And this is the thing. When in some browsers, you can make it happen. And my my stock answer, which was a little bit flippant, was uh, listen. If Microsoft couldn't be asked to put rounded corners into their browser, damn sure I can't. <laughs> and and you got away with that. Yeah, for the most part. <laughs> well, because, well, because, and I suppose maybe it's a personality thing, but um, I've never been particularly scared of disagreeing with somebody. You know, if I, if, I, if I thought that what they were asking for was, you know, was silly. Yeah, we do that. We do that. We do that all the time. It's really important. They'll ask for something, and you just have to say, "Look, there's there's a reason why we don't want to do that, and it's a really good reason." And this and this is it in its most distilled and, and easy to understand format you can't you can't just say yeah we'll you know we'll do our best because that that'll that'll keep them happy just then but then you know just will cause problems for you later down down the line well one of the things the title of my talk was how to call your client an idiot to their face without getting fired 
<laughs> that was the title of the talk, and it's, it's like intentionally provocative, obviously. Um, and I and yeah, spoilers for anybody that might see this talk in the future. But at the end, I'll say, you know, just like you wouldn't normally actually call somebody an idiot, but what they ask for may be idiotic. Right. And if you've spent the time laying the groundwork throughout the design process, if you've communicated well face to face, they've seen you work. Um, you haven't hidden everything away behind visuals you haven't worked for weeks and weeks and then done a big reveal Ta-da! website mm. um then hopefully you'll have developed a relationship with them over that point where they trust you they understand you know how you've arrived at where you've got to and they will then feel you know they won't mind so much when you turn around and say listen i think that's a stupid idea yeah, it's a it's a rapport, isn't it? It's a because they can turn around to you. And one of the things that 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 we've been doing recently is uh, thinking about how to get structured feedback from a client through a, through a design process. And we we had some we had some rules, right? We had some um, rules. Now we don't accept feedback by email anymore. Um, you can't just kind of like throw an email at me saying, you know, I'm really not sure about the header. Too many apes. <laughs> so because we, I don't want like a million conversations about a million things going on. Right. Um, so I like to keep everything in one place. So that's one rule. And we never, ever, ever just like send an email of a comp to somebody or stick it up on Basecamp and go, what are your thoughts? Because <laughs> thoughts about what? Because you'll get an email with a hundred bullet points or. Exactly. So one of the things that we've started to do is to think about ways to, get structured feedback. So we break a design down, down into uh, its components. So it's typography and uh, colorways and, you know, form element styles or whatever. And then we'll ask people to have conversations about and give us feedback about just those topics. Right. Oh, I see. Before or, you know, before they see what the whole thing looks like as an ensemble in a, in a final comp. Cause if you, if you show a comp to somebody or if you show a comp to the homepage, cause it's always the, it's always the bloody homepage they want to see first, isn't it? Sure. That's, that's the page everybody sees first. According it's to not. Them. <laughs> According to them. Yeah, of course. But so they want to see the homepage and then you show them the homepage and you might want to have a conversation about typography and all they're concerned about is the fact that you've used the logo. I see. Yeah. Cause they'll just jump straight to, to whatever they see first. And you won't get any feedback on the typography until round three when they say, oh, I don't like that. We were working with an organization in, uh, out in Geneva last year and, uh, lovely people, but there was one particular person on the, on the team that was fixated that we were using last year's version of the logo. And that trumps everything, right? That trumps all the other useful feedback. Nothing else on the page mattered. It was like, that was the thing. Um, or, you know, you want to talk about layout, but they just get fixated on the fact that actually that's last year's version of the last week's version of the special offer. You yeah. know, we need to see this week's version. Right? And you need something to say to that. That isn't just like, okay, we'll put that on the list. You need to say, well, that comes in a minute. Just, so what just hang on or whatever. Yeah. So we've been experimenting with different ways to get much more structured feedback. And we've been hosting design workshops. Uh, it's something Paul Boag wrote a really uh, good post this week. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, dealing with our fear of feedback, he called it. Anyway, part of what they've been doing recently at, at Headscape is they've been doing things like um, 
kind of workshops and conferences, like mini conferences inside an organization. Oh, the, uh, for with a client? Yeah. So basically, they've been doing almost like an open redesign project, but inside the organization. So you get everybody... Don't you run the risk of everybody having all sorts of input and... and design by committee starts happening or is this more informational this is how it works this is the process and you sort of give them the tools to to work with well we did a similar thing with uh iso last year and we said that our design room uh was kind of open really and if anybody wanted to come in and see what we were doing and you know Mm. they could bring their phone in with them too and and we could see what it looked like on a scabby old blackberry um and we basically said that anybody was welcome to come in and, and, and give us feedback about stuff, uh, particularly when, you know, they were coming in from all kinds of different departments. And we, I've got no idea, you know, whether something's important for, you know, a particular part of the organization. So they could come in and tell us that. Oh, I see. And, Rather than and, say, this is, this is bad. They, they can come in and say, this is bad. And for my yeah, particular reason, this is what. Yeah. This is that we we think that it's really important that you know what's happening in you know what our activities in the Middle East are really important and they should be you know much more prominent and you go okay let's deal with that um, and then we had another rule actually was that if you don't show up to an event because we, we we held this over the over the few weeks we held several of these kind of feedback sessions and we basically said if if you don't show up um, then you know your opinion doesn't count. And that includes that. That included the CEO as well. That's uh, nice. So he had to come in. He couldn't just like send yeah. an email with helpful suggestions like <laughs> the week before launch, right? <laughs> because that's useless. They'll tell you what you know, what they want and what they want changed, but you'd never get a sense of why. Whereas no. if you have that conversation in, you know, in an open setting, you can I mean, kind of sounds... say, what you know, what are you trying to achieve with this? It sounds as if you know it's kind of like you know Ponzi prima donna designers, but actually. It's just a way of trying to focus conversations down so we can get, we can distill the most important parts of that feedback and nothing gets missed. That's, that's something that we've tried to do. Yeah, that's good. You just, all you need to do is, is like you say, you just needed to, to take that to them and package it in a way that they can understand and in a way that sounds reasonably professional and, and less. You know, it doesn't sound like a prima donna thing. I don't, I don't think so. But you know, it, it runs the risk of someone saying, "Oh, these designers think they think they're running the show." And people get scared of losing control of the design, or you know, that that kind of thing. But some people say, you know, a lot of designers, and you know, again, Mark Bolton was talking about this at the, at the conference. A lot of designers want to get in uh, recently, anyway. That a lot of people have been getting into making products. You know, like like you guys. Yeah. Um, not just because they want to make products, but because they want to be their own client. Right? Did yeah. you did you think that was that yeah. one of your reasons? Oh, absolutely. That's that's reason number number naught. I think it was that was it. Because some people have said that you know, oh man, we'd do much better work if it wasn't for the client. You know, oh, we, you know, we, it would be much better if it wasn't for the for the client. I've, I've never believed that. Uh, I've never been one of those people that thinks that, you know, we know best always. Um, yeah. Yeah. The the client can just be a, a scapegoat for a really bad process, you know, that, uh, that fails to take into account the fact, you know, the people, the people involved in any 
in any in anything that you do there's always there's always people on both sides and they have reasons for saying whatever it is they do and and clients are just going to be clients people are going to act the way people do and either you have a, a process and a system that accounts for that well or you or you hate your clients <laughs> or you just hate work every day you know eventually well i figured out i think anyway i think this the the, the the big revelation that I had was people like to make suggestions on things. And, you know, sometimes we think they're good and sometimes we think they're bad and, you know, relevant or irrelevant. Mm. And I realized that sometimes people will say things and you look at it and you go, it doesn't need that. You know, we don't need to put that in. You know, we don't need to move the logo. We don't need to change the size of the type size. You know, why are you saying this? And, you know, sometimes, sometimes we think that, uh, you know, despite their best intentions anyway, it's, it's not taking us down the right kind of design direction. They, they mean well, right? Yeah. But we don't think that that particular uh, suggestion contributes to going down the right road. I think that a lot of times people like to make suggestions because they just want to see a little bit of themselves in the finished job. Right. They want to say, ah, that's I, yeah. That's the bit I, I know what you mean. Elliot J. Stocks had an interesting post on this, where he said that um, he would get his clients to do to do mood boards. Would be really early on in the process. Would would be just to it's it's scrapbooking. It's glue and scissors and things where you you cut out pictures and bits of text and stuff and things you like, and you stick them all together, and you you know you make a color scheme or whatever, and they get they get to get the glue stick out and you know arts and crafts day. But at the end you know at the end of that you you have something to go on. And it's something the client made. And the, the, whatever it is you make, you always feel attached to it. So you take, you take that on board and you, you build something or you design something based on that. And they're always going to see their, they started the process. They're always going to feel like there's something of them in it because it was their, it's kind of their idea to begin with. And I thought that was really interesting. Rather than starting with some concepts and taking them to the client, you, you you get them to start the entire process on something almost unrelated, and you just say, "Look, take all these photos, and and cut them all up, and put them all together, and just make a make a a mood board." Now, as a developer, a mood board sounds very sounds a bit new age, really. I want to put on some some new age music and and sit cross legged and make a mood board. But the concept is is as sound, I think. Do you do do you do mood boards? No, never. Um, we will do we will do research for, with people um i think that you know even our bestest bestest clients um left to their own devices to make a mood board would struggle um <laughs> even you know cutting things out and sticking them on paper it's not something that we f- have found successful um i need to find a link to it actually but we start a process with um almost like a brand interview. And this is something that we've kind of modified from a document that MailChimp actually put out, like a personality thing, where we will ask people questions about um, what words describe their brand and which words don't. Um, we'll ask people to almost kind of personify their brand by telling us who it is in the real world. Right. So we had we had a client that said, um, you know, uh, you know, and we ask for male and female often too. So this particular client I've got in mind, um, Daniel Craig was, was, was their male brand person mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, sort of s- smart, elegant, um, you know, immaculately tailored, 
but a little bit of a kind of a rough edge to it. You know, it wasn't kind of it wasn't purely conventional. Gotcha. And you get them to describe that to you first. Yes, we do. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of the, I think the female personification was Kelly Hoppen, the interior designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's on uh, Dragon's Den now, I think, as well. And once we started looking at some of Kelly Hoppen's interior designs in the way that she uses color, we looked at lots of photographs of you know her interiors, and then you think to yourself, okay, well, if that's if, if if that's the direction we're going down, then let's see how we can kind of adapt some of those color palettes and see whether they work, you know, on screen. Right. And you know the color palettes that we ended up with were based based around those, and it, it taken us off in a completely different direction. And if we just said to the client, you know, so what what are your corporate colors? Yeah. So that was interesting. And you can explain that too. You know, you can in the in the uh, description of the design that you send through, you can say where you got that stuff from and. And use the words that they gave you in the first place. So it's almost a, a similar thing where, where if you can explain how you took what they said and worked it into your design, they can, they can feel like they contributed without, you know, without them actually having to sit and hover and tell you to move things. Yeah. And then you can take that stuff and create kind of elegant typography, um, you know, working on colors. The, the end, the, the design that we ended up with was, was actually quite, um, it had kind of kind of deep purples, blacks, and whites in it. It's not out there yet, so I'm not. I can't give you a link. Um, which were very much based around kind of you know those hopping interiors, but you know with a kind of a I don't know. It's almost like a Daniel Craig tuxedo thing in there too. You know, black tie. Sure. So it it sounds really corny, but it worked, and the client felt really involved right the way from the beginning. And they didn't come back to us at the end and, and go, no, "I'm not really sure about the purple." Yeah, because they know where it came from. You didn't just pull it out of the out of the sky. You can say, "Look, this this is this is what we're going with, and this is where it came from." I think it was the same thing with with Elliot's post, the other Elliot Elliot's post, where uh, it was almost a you know kind of a, a sort of a diversion. It's it's a misdirection in a way because you you know you sort of say, "Okay, well you know get out the scissors and stick all these things together, and then you you go off and do whatever it was you know you you were probably about to do anyway." And, I think uh, the worst thing is is to is to do what I know still goes on. I think in some places, which is to work away on a on a series of comps for you know a day or a week or two weeks or something like that, and then you know go and present them. It's like in that bloody episode of Mad Men, you know, where they've got the things printed out on a board. In fact, I do remember a client telling me that they'd worked on a different project and the agency had literally come and shown them the comps on a board. They'd printed these things out, A3. (laughs) Can you believe that? A3, so they were huge. Yeah, yeah, they were A3 (laughs) mounted pictures of websites. I've done that. I've been there. Yeah, but not in the last 10 years, surely. No, not recently. No, it's, it's ridiculous. We, you know, we, we don't, we don't like doing that. I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's nuts to just present someone with the finished article and, and, and say, look, this is your, you know, this is your new website. We, we certainly don't. We, we sort of try and get a, you know, get a, a, a first draft or, you know, comp or something across as soon as possible. Cause that way you can see if you're going in the right direction and say, you know, look, this is, this is what we're working with so far. This is kind of the idea. Um, and maybe a couple variations or slight variations that, 
maybe aren't, aren't quite as good as the the one that you want to proceed with but oh you're not you're not one of those people that does three versions or three comps well, i don't because i'm not a not a not a designer i don't pixel but i've people have had varying success with that do you you do do you do that no lord to clarify no. this for our our listeners both of our listeners this is the uh this is the um the technique of sending through one comp that you like and that you've done a lot of work on and then two other comps that are that are nowhere near as good that that you that you just you i guess you you really hope they don't go with and and people have reported success with it and you know everybody seems to think that it's a valid technique i i think that that's a recipe for disaster because <laughs> they'll choose the wrong one right That's well no i think there's a there's a few things wrong with it first of all if you're going to present an idea that you are uh, recommending you know if it's your counsel to go for comp a then put the time that you would have spent in camp in in comp b and c into bloody camp mm. a, right? You know, why waste your time making something just to be thrown away? I mean, I don't see the point in that. Well, at all. I, I think one of the justifications was that people expect it. Well, I mean, I think maybe the justification, yeah, maybe the justification is it makes you look as though you've done more work. Kind of. Yeah, it's that thing again where, where there, there's, you know, there's your process and then there's what people expect. Hmm. I don't know. I, I mean, as a developer, I guess. <laughs> I'm going to say as a developer this entire time, so my my opinions can be thrown straight out the window. I think that, you know, if you show somebody three things, I mean, the worst thing, the worst thing in the world is that if they if they go, oh, well, I like the header on that one, but I really don't like the body copy on that one, but I like the footer on that one, and you end up with some Franken Oh, yeah, okay. And we've all been there. So, no, I I think that, well, first of all, I rarely, if ever, show a client a comp of a site before we build it. Um, I want to get straight into code as quickly as possible, so the first thing they see is going to be HTML. Yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, I think that's right. I think that's the right way to do it. I think the reason people show the comps first is because the build, historically, has always taken a long time. To go from a PSD, where you work in the PSD for the visuals, and then... You go and do the you go and do the, the the build of the site, and and it used to take well, it used to take a lot longer than it takes now. It still takes time, but uh, you know it it used to it used to take it used to take much much longer. Well, you know, we were talking about earlier on about uh, I think didn't you say something like designers have to learn the code, right? I did not say that. You can't quote me on that. <laughs> well, it was something bloody similar. It was similar to that. It was along with <laughs> it. Yeah, but I've been thinking about this because. You know, we hired a lovely designer and she can't code. I mean, she, she knows a little bit about CSS and she understands HTML, but, she, you know, she, I wouldn't ask her to sit there and, and make an entire page layout because, you know, that's not what she does. Yeah. Um, and a lot of designers are in that situation. So it would be really useful if we could demonstrate code, but without people having to really, you know, know the, about how to make it well you know good code and the thought occurred to me i thought well hang on a minute dreamweaver was exactly for that wasn't it right back in the day yeah so if dreamweaver was a kind of a drag and drop uh code creation thing um and you know you talk to anybody about something like dreamweaver now and they think oh my god 
It's like, how can you say that? But actually, oh, it's 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 still something that people are trying to do. You see, there's a difference between, in my mind, there's a difference between code that you use to demonstrate a design and code that ends up on the final production site. Oh, I see. Yeah, and oh, we've see. all been saying to ourselves, you know, develop designers have to learn to code because you know what's the point in coding something twice, right? But if we think about a crappy Dreamweaver web page that properly communicates a design or communicates it better than, um, you know, better than a PSD. I can't believe I'm saying this. Actually, people should use Dreamweaver, but maybe they should, right? Not to make websites. For a throwaway, to... right? For a yeah, throwaway, exactly. For a throwaway comp, for throwaway mock-up. I don't, I just, I've never had the result be any good. And then it doesn't work responsively. And then there's always edge cases with that. It's it's a it's a it's a tool that people are still kind of, look at McCaw. You've you've seen McCaw? What the movie with Bruce Willis where they have to No, that's not Bruce Willis. That's the one with the asteroid. You're talking about one where they have to drill to the center of the earth to get the the uh, the the core rotating again. No, I'm talking about the bird. McCaw. <laughs> I thought you said the core. A crappy 80s sci-fi movie. <laughs> and then you were you were talking about Armageddon. Armageddon. Now, see, now we digress. But Armageddon was a bloody great movie. We need a digression corner. I had one of those on stage. I think I need one in my house. I really... Alex was telling me all about the core. Because <laughs> apparently geologists watch it just for a laugh. <laughs> well, that's the same way we watch uh, uh, sci-fi computer movies, where they create a GUI and Visual Basic and use it to track IP addresses. Hey, I forgot to mention the best bit about handheld this week. What was that? John Hicks and I got to push Lee, Ling Valentine. You know Ling from Ling's Cars? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> right? She, she arrived. She arrived with a Dalek. I am not making this up. It looked amazing. And John Hicks and I got to push the Dalek onto the stage in front of 1,200 people. It was like... The look on my face, honestly. That's a lifelong dream of yours, I think. She had a Toyota badge on the front of the Dalek, which... <laughs> if that's not product placement, I don't know what is, really. Well, that's kind of her shtick, isn't it? That's her... That's a... That's a, that's a, a her branding kind of... Is always a bit uh, in your face, I guess. She was excellent. We are completely digressing, but... Um, I've forgotten what direction we were... She... She was pushed onto the stage by two, um, two small boys, me and John Hicks. <laughs> she was in the Dalek. She was in the Dalek, sealed in, and we pushed her on, and she did the whole kind of intro exterminate thing, and then we lifted the, we lifted the headpiece off the Dalek, and she did her entire presentation from inside the Dalek. Wow. And wow, then we that's... had to push her off at the end. Oh. So she was sitting down the entire. No, she was stood up. She's only wee. She's only she's she's Chinese. She's only it small. A, it was a big Dalek too. Was they that only come in one size? Uh, well, I don't know. Oh. Look, I'm foreign. <laughs> it was a flipping Dalek, is what it was, and we pushed it on stage. That's all I needed to know. Um, but anyway, no, she did this talk, and she started off with a Dalek, and her tagline was that um, a mobile phone is not a TARDIS. I see where I see where you're going with this. And basically, her whole why. talk was about how the fact that um, a responsive design would make the Ling's Cars website uh, basically explode your mobile phone. You could you could never uh, squidge 
because your mobile phone is not a TARDIS, you could never um, fit all of the content from Lynx cars into a mobile phone. So a responsive site was basically, you know, it wasn't going to work. Um, so to a room full of 1,200 people that, you know, probably religiously thought that responsive design was, you know, was the be-all and end-all. <laughs> and then she stands up there in a Dalek and says, listen, you know, a, a, a mobile phone is not a TARDIS. Um, but I tell you what, she had some incredibly good points to make. And I've done what you did in the past, which is to kind of look at that website and think, oh, my God, that's ugly. Who would want to use that? And yet, having thought about it some more and hear her speak, um, especially about her mobile strategy, you know, what she does serve up for, for, for small screens. Yeah. She's a genius. I have got like a million, million times more respect for her now than I ever had before because really? I mean, it finally dawned on me just how clever she is. Um, and we might think that, you know, all of those flashing animated GIFs or whatever, uh, we might just think that they're kind of in bad taste, but, but they're but not. That's the they're, point. They're beautifully executed. Everything on that website is there for a reason and everything that she does is on brand, right? Right. There's not a single thing on that desktop design which doesn't belong there. You know, it's put there for a reason, no matter how crazy we might think it is. And then when it comes to the mobile stuff, she's obviously, you know, the, the mobile phone's not a TARDIS, right? So she's taken a, a sort of a mobile-only strategy, which is... You go there and you want to be entertained on your phone. As she said, you know, so nobody's going to lease a car from me by, you know, by looking at my site on a phone. So if they do come to me on a phone, small screen, I'm going to entertain them. And I bet half the audience were going, oh, yeah, but, you know, if you thought about your content strategy, then maybe you wouldn't put all this extra crap on the web pages. <laughs> right? But you know what? All the extra crap is there for a reason, and it's all on brand. Yeah. So, when, so the experience that you walk away with on Ling's cars on the desktop, what she's done is she's tried to replicate that experience but with a different approach on small screens. And she's genius. I actually think um, I actually think I'm going to write a book about Ling's cars website. I've been seriously thinking about it this weekend because there's so much material there. I, I, I yeah, I know she's she's a She's absolutely brilliant. It's a clever way to put that. The mobile phone is not a TARDIS. It's a clever way to put it. Well, we we get a we get a lot of sort of uh, iOS app design where where the, the web app or the Mac app exists, and they want to make a sort of a companion app for the iPhone. And you have to you have to kind of get them away from putting all of the all of the stuff on the that's on the desktop version into the into the iPhone. They'll say, oh, you know what we what we want is a what we want is a, a an iPhone app that does all of the things that that our desktop app does. And you have to say, well, you know, what's this actually going to be used for? Are people going to use this for the same purpose as the web, as the web version of what you're doing? And it's, you know, sometimes, but, but generally what you want is like a stripped down thing that conveys the same feeling or just gives you what you want on the phone. Well, I'm just pulling up Ling's cars. You should do this actually. Have you ever done this? Have you pulled up lingscars.com on your phone? No. Listeners, listeners, you should do this right now because, in fact, I'm just typing it in here. Links, cars. Um, 
it's, 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 it's brilliant. It's brilliant advertising because we're talking about it. Well, so yes, it, exactly. So you go, you go to lingscars.com, emma.lingscars.com if you want to just like shortcut this and do it in the browser. And you've got Ling on her nuclear rocket. Oh which, my God, yeah. Which is brilliant. And this. I love this so much. And, you know, then you go to choices. And I love this. You, you're going you're gonna to hit the choices button and you're going to go there. What do you get? Now, I'm not going to go through all of this because, um, you know, you need to do it yourself. But the first one that everybody wants is a free car. Okay. Free car. Click. Free car. Okay. So you click on the free car. Okay, so now, <laughs> got it? Email me a PDF to print and glue. It's yes. like one of the cereal box things. Yeah, now she's not going to spam you to hell, it says here. Trust me, I am Ling, she says. Hope you enjoy your visit to linkscars.com. So basically, that's it. She gets your email address and she's not going to spam you, but that's brilliant marketing. It's perfect. This is, this is, this is, this is great. Um, number two, non-mobile. Basically, it just takes you to linkscars.com. So that's that's basically the desktop site, which is about to explode my iPhone. Um, and, you know, you've got deals, you've got a game, you've got another game at the bottom here, like Brucey's Gift Belt. She it was quite funny, actually. She said, um, yeah, he's very old, but he's not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't she do well? Basically, this is her mobile strategy. And you think to yourself, hang on a minute, the sensible part of you would say... Yeah, she just needs to work on her content strategy and not put so much on her homepage. <laughs> but every single thing which is on her homepage is there for a reason, and she's done exactly the same thing with the mobile. It's just slightly different. Everything's consistent. You know, everything is on brand. Um, yep. Everything looks like it's sort of slightly off in a way. And do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of a Monty Python animation. Yeah. Oh, with with the, the giant, giant foot, foot and giant all of that kind of collage animation stuff, you know, it looks like it's sort of slightly off, um, and yet it's not. It's 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 on brand. I'm looking. Oh, Jesus, it just doesn't take doesn't take itself quite as as seriously as I love it. <laughs> Ling loves idiots with iPhones. It says <laughs> that's you and me, kid. Um, but there's Colonel right now, currently both both. Looking. There's Colonel. There's a picture of Colonel Gaddafi under number three. She gets she gets away with using Colonel Gaddafi and I and I didn't think I could, so I took Colonel Gaddafi off my website. He was gonna be one of the seven nutty boys because back in the day anyway, um there was a guy in Madness that played a little mini saxophone. He always wore a fez. And I thought, Oh man, if you're gonna have a guy in a fez on your website, it's gotta be Colonel Gaddafi. And right. then um the ladies here said, you know, listen, don't go there, Clarky, because, you know, Americans might not like Colonel Gaddafi. So yeah. I put Karl Marx in there instead. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know who he is. Come on, do We made a URL shortener with Justin Bieber on it once. No, I didn't see that. that. Bieberly. I think it's the Bieberly. No, Bieber.ly. No, okay, you need to send me a link to that. I'll put it in the show notes. And like most of the... <laughs> And like most of those jokes, it started because we had the domain name and we thought, well, you know, for, for, for whatever reason. And we thought, well, what, what, what on earth are we going to put there? And of course, he sent us a cease and desist, you know, the, the day after we launched it and that had a hundred thousand visits or whatever. But, uh, you know, we, we were going to do another one because we had Kim Jong dot Lee. And you just, you really wonder, you know, whether these people know about this, these, these things and whether they're onto it. Bieber, Justin Bieber was very quick. Really? Didn't take him that long. 24 hours. His lawyers were, were right on the ball. Wow. I mean, the uh, he has a very large active fan base on the internet, you may have noticed. You may not have noticed. 
and they all they all jump. I've actually seen Justin Bieber in concert. <laughs> now I'm I'm just imagining you towering above a, an audience of 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 you know children watching a Justin. But you were at a Justin Bieber concert it for what reason? Gets worse actually because um, Alex, my son, and I we actually went to see Taylor Swift. This was years ago. We saw Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift and Motorhead in the same week. We just got tickets because, you know, why the hell (laughs) hell wouldn't she's in town? And actually, it was a great show. But uh, Justin Bieber was doing the support because that's, you know, he wasn't a big star at this point. He was just like an annoying teenager. So you saw Justin Bieber before he got famous. Exactly. And the best thing about it was that he the, the previous day they'd done a show in London and he'd broken his ankle. So he was actually on stage like in a big plaster cast. And about, you know, five minutes into the show, I'm thinking, oh, God, it could have been his head, really. We've gone on a serious digression here. Um, no, we were talking about feedback. But Ling's cars. Yeah, well, I'm giving Ling some feedback. Um, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to know more. I'd love to know more about um, her process and, you know, about the people that, you know, maybe help her with the website um, and do that stuff. Because I think that, I think it's genius. It's nice and unique. It's incredibly clever. And I know people, you know, people have made fun of it in the past. Um, and it doesn't matter. That's, that's getting the word out. Every time someone tweets it and says, this is the most ridiculous site ever, it sticks in your mind and you think, yeah, well, well I'm going to hire a car. What was that? You know, what was, what's that one I remember? Because it's awful. Yeah. No, that, that, yeah. I think people that have criticized it have not got either got the joke or realized about the branding. So no, I'm going to, I'm going to delve into this more. Ling, I'm sure, knows that people are doing that and doesn't mind. So they, they don't realize it when they're complaining about it. And we don't realize it when we point out how absurd it is. But, you know, we, we're all part of, the, uh, part of the advertising strategy. It's happening right now. It's genius. I know. Well, she's going to get, what, three extra visits based on you and me rambling about her website for the last... I refreshed it a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> 15 minutes. So we should wrap this up, really. Kind of... Uh... I like to keep things to an hour, but we've kind of gone over. That's okay. How do we do that? Do we do we have bullet points that we go back over? No. We just we just finish. This is a conversation that people are stumbling into, isn't it? Sort of. I mean, I kind of I usually wrap up, and I usually wrap up by saying, you know, if we've actually mentioned any links, then you can find them at unfinished.bz/number forty-seven. That's the number forty-seven. See how I did that? See how I seamlessly went from. Sounding like a blithering idiot into the into being sensible with the outro. You had practiced uh, radio announcer voice. Exactly. I should do. I'll do it again. Now you can follow Elliot on Twitter. Elliot Kemba. That's two L's and two T's. Just to be awkward. You, did you set up the one with a with a single T? I did. I, I had to. Everybody, otherwise, someone else would have. And then you'd have had your own. Then you'd have had a parody account. I have I have a whole bunch of parody accounts. The problem with having a whole bunch of parody accounts, by the way, don't do it. Because when Twitter have a, an email marketing campaign, you get an email for every account. Oh, God, yes. When they want to tell you about Twitter for business or something like that. Yeah, yeah. 25 times I had that email. <laughs> well, because you've got 25 stalker accounts. Stalker accounts? <laughs> What's a stalker account, Andy? I don't know. Maybe Maybe some people use an account for... Uh, no, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I have just three. Make, I just make fun of people. I have. Uh, I have. I actually, I have four. I have the main malarkey one. I have uh, stinking paws, which is my personal account, which I don't use that often. Actually, 
Um, and that's like, that's protected. That's friend and family kind of only really. Hmm. Um, and that's where I post all of my four square check-ins and stuff like that, that I don't want 30... the things people really need to know. Well, I don't want 30,000 people knowing that I just checked into a Starbucks, you know, not that they're going to come and find me, but you know, maybe I owe somebody money. No, you just want to tell your friends and family that. Exactly. It's good for kind of, you know, conferences, meeting up and stuff like that. So, uh, I've got that and I've got obviously the, the unfinished business show one and, Somewhere still, I've got the keys to a fake Sarah Parmenta account that I set up. <laughs> where for about three months, I posted links to uh, ferret enthusiast websites. Does she know this? She does know it now. Yeah, because she she just, did she didn't she realize. just found out. No, no, no. I told her this was this was a couple of years ago, and I basically I've been running this fake account for about three months and not telling anybody, so that when finally she actually looked, when finally she found it, it had this back history. But I did send her the login details. I think you should do this if you if you set up a, a parody account about somebody, um, it's just good manners to send them the the username and the password, because you know if you object to something, then they can you just go turn it off. Yeah, especially if it's got their name on it. If, yeah, if it's supposed to be funny, then, you know, the person that you're making fun of should be part of the joke. Anyway, so that's... So, I don't know whether she ever has. So, yeah, so that's that's that. You can follow me at Malarkey. Any links that we mentioned in our show notes? Well, I've said that a bit already, haven't I? I yeah. don't know. I've lost track of the entire thing. Listen, I've lost track of the entire weekend. We're in our diversion corner. <laughs> I don't think we ever got back from it. Uh, to ask questions or suggest topics, you can message the show on Twitter, the aforementioned at unfinishedbz, or you can email me, he has at unfinished.bz. Thanks again to our sponsors this week. They were Webcode. Support our show by supporting them. See, professional to the last. I, d- I didn't want to say anything because I felt like I was listening, listening to the podcast. You never listen to the podcast.